Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. I'm I'm listening to Film Sociology, and and uh, it's it's a real program. It's great. It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplex and the art house. What's new on video and streaming? And you might also hear about some dead people we like. We don't have time for dead people we don't like. <laughs> anyway, this is Film Sociology, where you'll find out what's the next cinematic marvel. It was unbelievable. And what's just a movie? Shut up! My God, you have no freaking life! Okay, here's your host and my dad, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosi. The show is available as a podcast, and it's also available on iTunes. Well, there's uh, there's a lot going on, and sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, when you host a program like this, life happens. Uh, a guest uh, who was supposed to be on the show this week had some uh, some uh, automotive issues, so we just the show must go on. So, uh, in its place, uh, after I do talk a little bit about some films and some festivals, I'm going to replay my interview with filmmaker Indiana filmmaker Jed Bryan, who made the 2013 horror film Unlisted Owner, because it's October and we can do that. It's now horror films are not just for October anymore, but you know why not? Just like I could have Sammy Terry on any time of the year. It's just, just this is a really high time for him. So, uh, with that in mind, before we get to that, in the shameless plugs department, of course, Indie Bard Fest is going on. Uh, you can go to indiebardfest.com for ticket information. You have Lear, the drama Lear Shadow, a youth production of The Tempest. You have Hamlet, and you have a production of Henry IV, Part One. And full disclosure, yours truly is playing Falstaff in that. This, these are happening at the District Theater as well as the Fringe Theaters uh, on Mass Ave. So IndieBardFest.com for all the information if you want to check that out. And, of course, we're in the tail end of the Heartland International Film Festival, which closes on the 20th. You can go to heartlandfilm.org for that information. Um, what else do we have going on? Uh, Friday, depending on when you're listening to the show, <laughs> Friday the 18th at 4 o'clock, the Alloy Orchestra. Uh, the program will be in form of an extended onstage interview with a Jurgensen guest filmmaker se- as a part of the Jurgensen guest filmmaker series. And then uh, at 7 o'clock on Friday the 18th at IU Cinema, the 1924 silent film with musical accompaniment live, Gallery of Monsters. On Saturday the 19th, uh, Santiago, I hope I'm saying it right, <laughs> from noon to 7.30 p.m., the Beyond Epic series uh, over, happening on the 19th. Sunday the 20th at 1 o'clock, Merrily We Go to Hell from 1932. And at 4 o'clock, 1956's The Girl Can't Help It. Wow. Monday the 21st, We Tell, Body Publix at 7 o'clock. Uh, on Tuesday the 22nd, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind at 7 o'clock. And Friday, October 25th, and Zach Williams is scheduled to be present as a part of the uh, International Art House series, the documentary Robin Williams, Come Inside My Mind. And then Saturday, October 26th at 4 p.m., Dr. Strangelove. And at 7 p.m., On the Way to School. All of those are happening at IU Cinema. At the Historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin on the 18th and 19th at 2 and 7.30 p.m. for this time of year, 
the Don Knotts film The Ghost and Mr. Chicken. October 25th and 26th at 2 and 7.30 p.m., the Tim Burton film Edward Scissorhands. And on Tuesday, October 29th, the screening of the Emilio Estevez film The Public. All of those are happening at the Historic Art Craft Theater. As a part of the Midnight Madness series at Keystone Arts, uh, 18th and 19th, you have the original Tobey Hooper, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. October 25th and 26th, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. And of course, November 8th and November 9th, with Tommy Wiseau in person, The Room, happening at Keystone Arts. At the... Skyline Drive-In in Shelbyville, because I love drive-ins in October. Uh, they're showing Zombieland Double Tap. Yes, it's been uh, 10 years since Zombieland, and now there's a sequel. So anyway, that is happening there, as well as Army of Darkness at uh, the second feature, and then the late feature from 1974, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Uh, Mexican horror film, if I think, if I'm remembering correctly. As says on the website, a cop chases two hippies suspected in a series of Manson family-like murders. Unbeknownst to him, the real culprits are the living dead, brought to life with a thirst for human flesh by chemical pesticides being used by area farmers. That's Let Sleeping Corpses Lie at 11.30 p.m. all weekend at the Skyline Drive-In. Over at the Tibbs, on screen one, you have Zombieland Double Tap and Joker. Screen two, the Gem uh, you have Gemini Man and Hustlers. Screen three, you have a Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, Angelina Jolie again, and Beetlejuice as the second feature. And then on screen four, because you need animation, The Addams Family and Abominable. Though all of those are happening over at the Tibbs Drive-In. And since we are getting close to Halloween... New on video, you have Three from Hell, the latest from uh, Rob Zombie. You have uh, the alligator attacking film Crawl. You have The Haunting of Hill House, the uh, 2018 version. There is the Omen Collection, which is now out. Every Omen film from 1976 through 2006. Uh, the Fearless Vampire Killers is a part of the Warner Archive series on Blu-ray from 1967. Uh, one of the funnier films this year, uh, from tw uh, earlier this year, the Jesse Eisenberg film The Art of Self-Defense. A nice uh, poke at uh, toxic masculinity and martial arts. All of those are new titles on Blu-ray. Now, uh, some other titles of note. Uh, if you're a soul music fan, and thanks to, uh, thanks to me and what I've inflicted on an indie bard fest, more people in the show know about the music of Teddy Pendergrass. And uh, MVD Visuals put out a documentary called Teddy Pendergrass, If You Don't Know Me, The Rise, Fall, and Resurrection of Soul's Sexiest Superstar. Now, the, uh, this, this, his onstage antics I knew of, and of course the, the uh, car accident which uh, left him paralyzed, that I knew. But we go deeper in depth uh, interviews with musicians and friends of his in the Philadelphia area. The, uh, the dark side of show business, especially uh, in Philadelphia, comes up, which I didn't know. Uh, but it, uh, And it's a BBC documentary. looks really good. Lots of drone shots in this as well. But uh, a good reminder to pick up some, uh, some Teddy Pendergrass in your collection if you don't have any already. 
and some really good archive footage of uh, Pendergrass before and after the accident and his impact, which should never be forgotten. Uh, also on video is uh, the uh, the uh, what is supposed to be in the next cult classic. We'll see the Israeli film Family. Um, the the setup is a uh, an artist who is struggling on her own and dealing with her family is trying to visit her psychiatrist and uh, and explain to her what has happened and what happens when you are pushed too far with your family and you make it a part of your artwork. And I'll just leave it at that. It's a you you will this is one of those you will feel better about your own Thanksgiving uh after seeing this. Uh it's it's not bad. It's not bad. And then from film movement, the documentary The Ice King, which is about skater John Curry, which I, I knew a little bit about because of his Olympic work. Uh but the fact that he on the night of his Olympic win in nineteen seventy six came out to the press even though he didn't think he did. So the the his rise in the business and the fact that he was out and still and then went pro and and then eventually died of AIDS. Uh, but the, but really good footage of Curry, good interviews, and uh, got to know more about him than, than I knew before. I just knew that he was an Olympic winner. So, uh, so anyway, The Ice King is also out on video, as well as Family and Teddy Pendergrass, if you don't know me. Uh, just so I can mention this, and, and hopefully we can get him on the show next week, Sammy Terry will hopefully be on the program next week, but of course you can go to SammyTerry.com for all the information. Friday the 18th, he's at the Moonlight Drive-In in Terror Haute. He wrote this. And uh, Saturday the 19th at the Starlight Drive-In in Boomington. He wrote that. Uh, October 25th, and uh, he's at the Indiana Landmark Center at 6.30 p.m., uh, the 26th, he'll be at Franklin Park's Halloween Town in Franklin. That's a 1 p.m. appearance. Uh, October 27th at the Art Sanctuary of Indiana in Martinsville. That's a 6 p.m. appearance. October the 29th at the Logansport Indiana Elks Parade and Stage Show at the State Theater. October the 29th at 5.30 p.m. Halloween night, the 2019 Halloween night, Sammy Terry birthday celebration. I think you go uh, go online for that. November 1st on Friday will be the Facebook Live movie broadcast with a studio audience on November 1st. And then December 6th, the Christmas party, the first Friday Facebook Live movie broadcast with a studio audience. So that is, uh, you can go to SammyTerry.com for all the information over there. All right, with that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, we dip into the archives and we'll play my interview with author, with author, with uh, Indiana filmmaker Jed Bryan. Enjoy. When artists create, uh, whether it's a play or an album or a film, uh, you know, there, there's some autobiographical background behind it. I, I, I'm hesitant to ask you that, but uh, where, where did your inspiration begin for uh, Unlisted Owner? Well, uh, for the longest time, um, I've been a lifelong horror fan. Uh, my parents used to take me and my brother to the haunted houses in Evansville, Indiana. And uh, my mom had actually bought me some VHS tapes as a kid of a house on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price, the monster movie King Kong versus Godzilla, and always had an interest in horror. Uh, but it wasn't until I got into high school and I actually saw the hostile film by Eli Roth that 
really got me interested in real life horror and just got me thinking, wow, you know, there's something else out there besides, you know, Jason and Freddy and the typical, you know, monster movies. I mean, there's stuff of, you know, realism that can really scare people. So I started getting ideas of what would scare me and putting them in the script form. And that's kind of how we started to go down the road towards Unlisted Owner. So there is some autobiographical aspect. I, I, I didn't mean this to turn into a therapy session, but uh... – <laughs> But uh, that, no, that's yeah. fascinating. So um, I, I, now, for those who don't know, I guess uh, tell tell the tell the folks uh, a little bit of the story of uh, of the film. Yeah, Unlisted Owner is a feature length found footage horror film, and for people who don't know what found footage is, it's kind of shot in like a guerrilla style, or you're supposed to try to portray it as events that really happened. In Unlisted Owner's case, it is uh, evidence that's been collected by the fictional Lawford County Sheriff's Department and edited into crime scene evidence uh, the basically the film follows a group of friends who hear about a family of five that is murdered in a house about a mile away from where they're planning to camp at for the night and uh, they actually go to the house and there's police cars and ambulances there and they're pulling a body out and they decide that they're still going to go on their camping trip but through a series of bad decisions they end up back at the house after their curiosity gets hurt and uh that's when all the fun begins <laughs> well uh yes i i, I think the, the the term is horror movie decisions at times are have to be made yes <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly now of course uh I found footage kind of became a subgenre because of the blair witch project and there's been a number of them from paranormal to you know all, all the others but you have a particular spin on the concept of found footage uh where did that come about and and tell folks what it is yeah, I, I decided to make it like uh, edited as crime scene evidence. I, I hadn't really seen that in a found footage film before, and I kind of wanted to give it that realistic aspect to it. Um, and another reason uh, we decided to go that route, too, was uh, we put these evidence placards so people can know who has the camera. Uh, I know there's several other found footage films where you're jumping back and forth between different cameras, and you're kind of like uh, not sure who's holding the camera or what point of view I'm looking at. So we put these evidence placards in there to kind of better uh, help people understand who has control of the camera at that point in time in the story. We also did a series of blend edits to be able to make uh, shorter scenes, uh, usually in found footage, the, uh, the people who control the camera, they do these hard edits where it stops and it may jump like five minutes ahead or 30 seconds ahead. So uh, I wanted to kind of eliminate that as much as I could. So we did a lot of scenes to where it looks like they go on forever, but there's actually like four or five edits within those takes. And actually there's some scenes that look like, well, it's just seamless, but it was like three or four months in between shooting. It, I mean, I, and uh, I know other examples of that is like Alfred Hitchcock's Rope or Birdman, where you find little areas that you can do that splice that you yeah. know where you know where it is, and if you if you're a big movie nerd like this host, you can find them. But for the general audience, it it, it flows. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, one cool aspect in the film of uh, there's an attic space scene in the film, which you've seen, and uh, the house actually did not have an attic space in it, so we actually had to build a set to mimic the room in the house. So we basically had a fake room to the specs of the real room to be able to get that shot. And within that, I think it's like a 15-second scene. There's like six or seven edits in that one scene there. Nice. 
Um, the other thing I was thinking of, and you, you mentioned the, the, the different cameras. There's a, it, there's a, a little bit of Rashomon uh, to the storytelling. And, yeah, I just dropped Rashomon on a horror film <laughs> shot in the Midwest. Deal with it. But, um, but that I mean, were you, when you were working on the script, you had that outline as far as let's use this camera, let's use that camera? Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to, to show um, different, uh, like different points of view in the story. Uh, like we have the police dash cam, we have the, the interview uh, with Tanner, and then we have uh, Jed and Griffin, who are kind of the the main characters that you go back and forth between the cameras on. So yeah, I kind of always had that in my mind to be able to go back and forth to to do that. Okay. And uh, of course, you you well, you did everything on this. I think catering as well. Um, is I, <laughs> I have, a lot of hats. I have to ask: Was that your band? It, I mean, <laughs> it was. <laughs> Just ask him. I mean, it, it, I'll tell you what. It, it was a it was a surreal experience. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> it got to the point to where you know I always wanted to make a movie, and um, the only way I was going to be able to get it made, especially in the small town of Sumner where I live that I was going to have to do a lot of different things. So mm-hmm. I just went ahead and just jumped in head first and just decided to roll the dice and see what happens. <laughs> well, okay, so you, talking about your hometown, um, I'm going to just put did, – did you get permits? Did the town know you were doing this? Well, actually, um, yeah, they did. Um, I'm actually on the the volunteer fire department. Ah, I'm also on the actually I'm on the city council now as well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I got a lot of irons in the fire right now. But uh, but yeah, they, they were aware, uh, very much aware of it, and uh, I had the support of the local police department, local fire department. Um, actually, everybody in the film who were first responders are actual first responders in real life. So, um, yeah, so that kind of has a little bit of a hint of realism in it as well. I was going to say, when I saw the trucks, I was like, ooh, production value. What would you have to get for that? Yeah, yeah just ask. just made a phone call and <laughs> asked. And actually, my mom is uh, good friends with the, the coroner, so I was able to get a body bag and, you know, all that stuff. So it really added a, a lot of realism to the film for sure. And uh, there's nothing wrong with beg, borrow, and steal for your art. That's all right. That's, that's right. <laughs> now, because you also directed this and was acting in it, it's one thing to – and I'm always curious about this um, – as far as – you know, having the camera set up so you can be in front of it, even though you're also direct, quote unquote, directing behind it. But I, because it's a found footage, how much emphasis or importance was there of 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 using the movie term hitting the mark? It, it's really difficult, especially in a found footage setting. Um, I, I had an assistant director. Uh, how we ended up doing this was I had a digital transmitter on the camera, and my assistant director would be in another room, and whenever I would do a scene. I'd be trying to listen to the dialogue to make sure it flowed the way that I had wanted it and the way it was in the script. And he would be in the other room kind of watching how I was moving the camera. And every time I'd say cut, I'd immediately go back to him and say, okay, so what do you think? And he'd say, oh, I loved how you, you know, how everybody was in focus or, you know, uh, I liked how you concentrated on this. Why don't you do that next time? Just do a little bit more, stuff like that. He kind of shared the same vision as me. So that really, really helped a lot to be able to have a director, another set of eyes on it. Because looking through that little bitty viewfinder on a camera can be kind of tedious sometimes. I wondered if, and did you uh, draw out anything ahead of time for this? Uh, you mean as far as storyboarding? Storyboarding, and stuff? yeah. Yes, yes, for okay. sure. Yeah, uh, there were some key scenes in the film. Uh, 
the uh, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think the ending sequence. Yeah, well, I don't. Want, uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to give away a whole lot, but there's there's a couple yeah. of moments where I thought that's got to be boarded because there's some, there's yeah. a couple of uh, spoiler alert on a horror film. There's a couple of jump <laughs> moments that I that yeah. that are very effective. Yeah, yeah, we have I, because and storyboarding is very important. I mean, there's there's some people out there that make films like, oh, I don't really want to storyboard, but I wanted to make sure that my uh, cast and crew knew kind of the same vision that I was wanting for the scene to kind of help help it, you know, go better and for them to be able to understand what I was wanting. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did you come find the house? Because we all know the house is also a character. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, whenever I, um, the house is actually in Sumner, Illinois, the town I live in. And uh, when I was a kid, I always thought it was such a fascinating house, such a creepy-looking house for sure. had a lot of character to it. And uh, I always had in the back of my mind, like, wow, that would be such a cool house to, you know, have a scary movie in or, you know, have a haunted house in. And uh, whenever I was writing Unlisted Owner, I had that house in mind. And the guy who owned it at the time was gracious enough to let us use it because no one was living in it at the time. So it worked out great. And uh, did you, I mean, and when you first went in, were you, I, I mean, as far as testing the rooms, did you do camera tests to see how it could go from one level to another? Well, um, I'd actually been in it one other time when I was a kid, so I kind of knew the layout, and I also kind of wrote that into the script because the house is huge. It's like a three-story house with mm -hmm. a full basement. So the only part I think I hadn't been in is was like the basement part and maybe the very, very upstairs. But I knew that it was a big enough house that I could, you know, have a little bit more creative control as far as different rooms, different things happening and stuff. Because I knew there was a lot of rooms in the house. Okay. And uh, shifting gears a little bit, how was any of this was any of the film improvised with the actors? There were a few scenes that we, I mean, I, I'd always let them have a little bit of creative control. Uh, whenever we, whenever I wrote the script, uh, I had all the main cast set around, and we did a roundtable read of the whole entire script. And uh, whenever you're uh, writing a script and you kind of know who's going to play the parts, because my friends were pretty much the main cast, and your friends have different mannerisms, different ways they convey things and different things they like to say, different words they like to use a lot. So uh, I wrote that into the script, and also I used their first names. So that kind of helped with the flow a little bit too. But when we did the roundtable read, like I, I let them say, well, you know, I let them, if, if they thought their character wasn't going to say that, I would say, okay, well, you know, tell me what you would like it to say, and we'd change it and stuff. And, I mean, we had a few things that we added in here and there. So, But, no, but for the most part, you know, when you go back and look at the script, I mean, it's pretty much, you know, the flow is exactly how I had it. Yeah, I saw the cast list, and I kept thinking of the the story Tony Danza said. He he always played characters named Tony because if they called him something else, he wouldn't turn around. <laughs> yeah, I figured it because everybody in the film, it was actually their first time acting in a movie. <laughs> so, I mean, I think people had done plays and stuff like that. For, most, for the most part, most of us were pretty green to it. So I wanted to kind of make it as easy as possible and be able to use everybody's first name instead of like, hey, Steve, and they, you know, make it kind of awkward. Just kind of let the flow go. Right. Um, so looking at the timeline, was was this shot on, on weekends? Uh, on week, Yeah, it was. Uh, we basically uh, – you said it was shot on weekends, right? Sorry about that. Yeah, because I, I noticed – because for folks, there's, there's about a – it took a two-year span to complete, correct? Yeah, yeah. We uh, we basically shot on the weekends. Um, uh, everybody had full time jobs and stuff, and uh, I, I the scheduling was kind of hard. I had a, a buddy 
well, actually, Tyler's in the film. He's uh, he was actually a police officer at the time, which is kind of funny. And um, he was working like every weekend or like like one day a weekend. And then Andrea, she was like working every other weekend. So to try to get them in the same scene was kind of difficult sometimes. But we were able to get it. That's the main thing. <laughs> and that, that's got to be hard because not just because of the time and the commitment of others, but also the continuity aspect. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we, we did have an issue with continuity. Uh, there was a scene that we uh, – I and after we filmed it, I put it into the editor and realized there was a huge mistake in it, and I needed to reshoot it. And a few months had went by by this time, and uh, when I finally got everybody together to shoot it, uh, I, I think Heidi didn't have her overshirt any longer. Uh, Griffin didn't have his glasses because he doesn't really wear glasses, and kind of a pain, especially to find a woman's shirt. <laughs> Having to go around to all these different stores saying, uh, "I need this shirt. Can you guys have something similar to this?" I mean, it's a lot harder than what you would think to try to find something like that. And how was cast morale as you were going through uh, these weekend shoots? Oh, we had a blast. I mean, we look back on it now, and um, I, I talked to the different people who were in the film, and they look back as like it's almost like a coming of age movie, especially for us. Uh, um, Tyler, he's married and has kids now. I'm married, have a kid on the way. So I mean, it was kind of like you know, like us being youthful and having you know, instead of like you know, kind of trans, you know, going to the transition of adulthood. So, I mean, it was, you know, we had a blast the whole time. We were always laughing and joking. And, you know, if you get the DVD, you can see the behind the scenes. And you're like, wow, how the heck did he make this thing with all this joking around going on? <laughs> now, yeah, I, I read that you, you, I know you had a couple of screenings in Indiana in 2013. And then there was another yep. one by the, with the American Film Market in 2015. Were, yep. there, were there any changes that happened because of the focus groups and because of those screenings? Yeah, actually there was. Uh, in 13, we uh, the first focus group showing we did was in Vincennes, Indiana, and uh, we showed it twice. We had 110 people each night, and uh, I passed out surveys. And uh, one of the main things people were wanting to know were uh, was about the family of five who moved into the house. So uh, after reading all the feedback, I decided to go back in, and I wrote a new beginning sequence to the film. Uh, because the film originally started with me, Tyler, and Gavin loading up the vehicle for the camping trip. So I have actually casted some people locally in the area, and we uh, shot the original Family of Five scene that's the uh, beginning sequence to the film, which I think really, really helps set the tone for the movie. And how did the? Uh, when did you find out that you were going to be released on uh, Amazon? Uh, we, uh, well, we went to the American film market, and uh, we... Uh, submitted screeners to all these different distribution companies and after we signed our deal with uh, Tomcat Films, Summerhill Films out of Phoenix, uh, they gave us a list of deliverables and uh, one of the deliverables was basically to create an M&E track for the film and I'm not sure if you know what an M&E track is but it's basically all the background sound separated from the dialogue which I found footage film, it's kind of hard to have someone with a boom mic follow you around so it's all recorded on the camera. So we basically had to recreate every sound effect for the entire 74-minute film, and that took us from February of 17 to July of 17. And once we got that complete, that's when we found out that it was going to be released November 14th on Amazon. So <laughs> it was a long road for sure. Can you watch found footage films anymore? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay. Um, I actually I haven't watched very many lately because I've been uh, busy with the, the film and stuff. 
But uh, I did play a found footage video game of Outlast. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, mm-hmm. but it's actually like a, a game, and you have like a, a handheld camera, and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty neat game for sure. But that's the, probably the most recent found footage involved thing that I've done here lately. Do you have another wor- uh, another script in the works? I have like I have several scripts ready to go, uh, even an unlisted owner too. But it just kind of depends on the funding we get from unlisted owner, depending on which direction we choose. I mean, I would love to shoot a traditionally shot film. The main reason we did found footage on this um, this time is because of funding. So hopefully, okay. fingers crossed, we'll be able to make enough to be able to put into a, to make a traditionally shot film next time. And you said you have a child on the way. Yes, yes, I do. Yep. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, Jace Bryan is going to be due May thirtieth. And uh, how old before you show Jace this film? Uh, <laughs> he may have to get a little bit bigger. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to have to, you know. Especially the wife might be mad having him having nightmares, so I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I, as a, as the father of a sixteen-year-old, I can tell you, I will give you this parental advice: you can watch anything in the first year. Okay. All because right. Awesome. She has not. My daughter has not brought up watching the Wild Bunch, so <laughs> I figured if she she would have by now. So yeah, I would say the first year. Although you might get what I like to use the term uh, sitcom wife look. If uh, so, you know, just. But I think the first year you'll be okay. All right. Awesome. I'll I'll put that down. <laughs> That's filmmaker Jed Bryan. You can, of course, purchase his film, Unlisted Owner. I believe he has, yes, on Amazon and all the other. Or if you find him at a horror convention, you can check him out there. So, yeah, look up Jed Bryan and uh, an Unlisted Owner. All right, I want to end uh, today's show with a dead person I really, really like. Uh, character actor, and even though Miss Sosa says uh, all actors are character actors, but... Character actor Robert Forrester died on October 11th at the age of 78. And uh, uh, one of these guys started out in, in the late 60s. And as he has, had, he, he has said many times in interviews, had a, uh, had a pretty good start of about four or five years and then 25 years of nothing. And then a great show business comeback story, uh, which uh, guided him to the, to the end of his life. Uh, his first film from 1967, and I, it, you need to revisit this because it is, you have big names in a bat spit crazy mess of a film, Reflections in a Golden Eye, starring Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor, Brian Keith, uh, Julie Harris, and it's directed by John Huston. And uh, a, a naked Robert Forster appears in this film as a private. Uh, Brando's character is having issues with closets. And uh, anyway, it, it, it turns into a melodramatic mess. From 1968, he appeared in The Stalking Moon and then got known for appearing in Haskell Wexler's 1969 film Medium Cool as the, uh, as the, rep- the photographer. Uh, and then went through the 70s working consistently, appearing in TV shows like Nakia and Banyan, appeared in The Dawn is Dead from 1973, Stunts in 1977, Avalanche in 1978, Disney's first PG movie, The Black Hole, from 1979, Alligator, the John Sayles scripted film from 1980, 
Heartbreak High. I, I think I remember seeing that on Cinemax in 1981. Worked with Fred Williamson a few times, including Vigilante from 1982. And then played the terrorist named Abdul. Shut up, Abdul. In uh, the Chuck Norris film The Delta Force from 1986. And after that, a lot. Satan's Princess, The Banker, The Peacemaker, D- Diplomatic Immunity, Maniac Cop Three worked with Fred Williamson again in South Beach. Uh, Scanner Cop Two, Body Chemistry Three. You get the idea. American Yakuza plays a detective in the Fred Williamson film Original Gangsters. Hindsight, and then in 1997, Quentin Tarantino cast him as Max Cherry in his film version of Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch, now known as Jackie Brown, and uh, revisiting. The film and interviews, uh, uh, Tarantino had talked to Forrester at one point of playing the Lawrence Tierney role in Reservoir Dogs and was supposed to be, supposed to be, I believe, the Sam Jackson character in True Romance. And be, none of those happened. But, uh, you know, Quentin has a way of, whether it's Pam Greer or... Um, or in John Travolta, and in this case, one of the great comebacks with Robert Forrester, and that just jumped his career. Was the best thing about the Gus Van Sant 1998 remake of Psycho, Supernova, Lake Boat, Me, Myself, Irene, Mulholland Drive, Human Nature, Like Mike, Charlie's Angels, constantly working in TV and films. Uh, Firewall, Dragon, yeah, even Dragon Wars D-War. Um, Ghost of Girlfriends Past, The Descendants, yes, he was the general in Olympus Has Fallen, and London Has Fallen, uh, Small Town Crime, Small Crimes, uh, of course, was Sherrick Frank Truman in Twin Peaks, and just recently, of course, was Ed in El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie, so, uh, everything I've heard was a really, really nice guy, great storyteller, and, uh, we, we like guys like this that get their due, and and still constantly working, no matter how big or how small the film. So salute to Robert Forrester. So some of those titles, you should go check those out, especially Reflections in a Golden Eye, uh, Vigilante, The Black Hole, maybe, and definitely Jackie Brown, if you've not watched that already. And thank you for Bianca Slagle, and with help from Kobe, for her to finally watch Jackie Brown before this day actually happened. So, ladies and gentlemen, some words to live by. Silent Breed is people! Zardoz has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. Hope to see you at Indie Bard Fest. You can go to IndieBardFest.com for all the information. Come see me as Falstaff. You won't regret it. <laughs> You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan. I can't believe you let her watch Manos. <laughs> Is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. What parent are you? <laughs> when I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get oh, her ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. Okay. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it live!